The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from James 1, 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this right person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good to be with you. Uh, if you've met before, my name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here. Uh, grab a Bible. James chapter 1 uh, is where we're going to be hanging out this evening. If you need one, a Bible, there should be one on the ends of the rows. I'm going to be honest with you guys. Uh, on January 2nd, when we celebrated one year, and I said we're going after being uh, following Jesus together with grit this year, that I did not know that grit meant half of our church getting COVID and uh, snow shutdowns two weekends in a row. Uh, but I hope you see this uh, for what it is, which is an invitation for us uh, to love God and to love one another. And I, I've already heard some awesome stories of uh, church families stepping in and caring for one another in the midst of this season where it would be very easy to step back and to pull back and to isolate. So I hope that's been your experience too. If it hasn't, uh, tell me who I need to call that's in your community group. I'm just kidding. Uh, James chapter one, we're working our way. That was a joke. Uh, James chapter one, uh, we're working our way through the book of James asking the question, what does living faith look like? Right, if James is going to say in chapter 2, verse 14, that faith without works is dead, and I think I can speak for all of us, if you follow Jesus, that you don't want a dead faith, then what does it mean to have a living faith? What does it mean to have a faith that works? And what we're going to answer tonight is, what does it mean to have a living faith in relationship to God's word? Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into to this together. God, we are, are so grateful for you and for your gospel. As, as Jacob reminded us, even in the very first words he said to call us uh, to you and to call us to worship, God, we gather centering our hearts and our lives and our collectiveness as a family around you and around Christ and around the Spirit. And you make everything we're about to talk about possible. And you make the the obedience to your word possible. You make the receptivity to your word possible. You make the writing of your word possible. And we know that as we even think about and talk about and study what it is that you have for us, God, that these are not simply words on a page, God, that it's the living, breathing, active, without error word of God, word of you. Would you help us? We need your spirit. Probably things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Uh, growing up, we had this room in our house. Technically, it was the formal living room, but it was this room that you didn't really ever go into except when you were in trouble. In fact, even to this day, when we get together for holidays, my family still jokes and calls this room the lecture room. So even today, as a 30-year-old man, if I do something to upset my mom, she's like, jokingly, like, I'm going to take you to the lecture room and we're going to have to talk. In this room, I was not in much as a kid because I was perfect, but my brothers were in there a lot. And so secondhand from them, I learned that what usually happens in the lecture room is an interrogation style conversation with my dad. So he would sit down and he would never just say statements. He would always ask leading questions. You know what I mean? So you'd, he'd sit down with you and he'd, you were in, obviously in trouble. You had disobeyed him. And his first question would be, okay, do you remember that I said blank? Well, yeah. And, and, and what did I say that you should or shouldn't do? Well, I mean, like you said, I shouldn't do this or I should do that. Right. And did you listen? Well, obviously not because I'm sitting in the lecture room right now. What my dad was after and what he was trying to get us to understand in that room is that there were two important concepts we had to grasp when it came to obedience as his sons. Number one, we had to listen to him. We had to hear him. We had to receive what it is that he said. But then we also had to obey. Two aspects. We had to hear and we had to obey. And James is going to take that concept tonight in James chapter 1, 19 through 27, and he's going to apply it to God's word. That when it comes to God's word, there are two important aspects that we have to grasp. We have to hear it, receive it, listen to it, and we have to obey. Both are crucial as we learn how to follow Jesus and live out our faith. But before we get into receiving God's word and obeying God's word, here's what we first have to understand. What is God's word? What is this book that we try to center our lives around? What is this book that we try to center our church around? Here's what you have to understand. There is no book more important in the history of the world than this, than the Bible. It's the most popular book in history. Over 5 billion copies have been sold throughout time. No book has been more argued over debated, studied, written about than this Bible. Translated, there's more translations into different languages of this book than any other book in history. And what's wild, if you think about it, we believe as Christians that God, in all of his holiness, in all of his glory, in all of his might, in all of his love, has chose to make himself known to us as people. We believe this is not just words about God, that this is actually the word of God. This Bible, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I mean, look at all of that in just one verse, what the Bible says about itself. It's breathed out by God. There's divine authorship and human authorship. Another passage talks about how men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That God has written to his people. It's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for, for correcting our doctrine, for telling us how to believe and how to live. It's, it's profitable for reproof, which means, hey, don't go this way. And for correction, which means instead go this way. It's profitable for training in righteousness. James here, even in chapter one, as Sarah just read for us, he's going to tell us that this word, the word of God is able to save our souls. Meaning it's able to point us to Jesus, leading us down the path of salvation, that it's perfect. It's correct, it's true, it's what theologians for years have called, it's inerrant, it's without error. 
which means this is not simply some good ideas that we come every Sunday to contemplate or to consider or to discuss. This is the authoritative, true, perfect, living, sharper than any double-edged sword word of God. This is word, which is why we center everything about our church and everything about our lives around this. We teach it, we preach it, we encourage one another with it, we counsel from it. Everything we do centers around this. We want to be a Bible people because we're a Jesus people. And this word tells us who he is. It's from him. And so what we're doing tonight, here's where I kind of want to go with this. In light of that, God's word, this is what we're talking about. This is our big theme. Living faith receives and obeys God's word. Living faith receives and obeys God's word. Now that sounds great, right? God wrote a word. It's awesome. It's inerrant. It's true. It's perfect. It's helpful. Receive it. Obey it. Done. Deal. Let's go home and eat dinner, right? No. Here's the problem. Sin. Sin is the problem in all of the Christian life and in how we approach God's word. Because of our flesh, our sin nature within us, there's going to be some barriers that get in the way of you fully and truthfully and rightly receiving and obeying God's revealed word. That's what James is going to deal with in this passage. He's going to give us a few uh, ways, reasons we reject both the receiving and obeying of God's word. So let's get into it. James chapter 1, we'll start in verse 19. James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This is one of those verses that's kind of infiltrated its way into popular culture. So you might have heard it before, even if you've never read the Bible, you may have like seen it on a coffee mug or seen it, uh, maybe heard it as like, this is good advice for your job, right? It's like, if you want to get ahead at work, then you should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to be angry. Or if you want a good marriage or good friendships, right? It's best to listen a lot more than you talk and to be patient with the other person. And that's true. And that's good life advice and a helpful proverb and wisdom for life. But in the context, what James is actually talking about is that this should be our mark, a mark of our posture towards God's word. That when we approach God's word as he's about to get into, we should be quick to listen, quick to receive, quick to hear. We should be slow to speak, slow to rebut, slow to justify, slow to kind of excuse around. And we should also be slow to anger, defensiveness, a posture that says, yeah, I know God's word says that, but I just don't like it. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Let me give you a diagram that I think will be helpful as we think about this idea of receiving God's word. So this is, uh, I made this. That's a stick figure. That's you or me. Uh, this is that kind of good design you come to a church plant for. All right. So stick figure, that's you. James says that you are supposed to receive. We are supposed to receive God's word. That's what the arrow means. God's word comes to us. Again, I made this. Don't blame Stephen. But here's the problem. There's a barrier. And James says that that barrier happens. We can't receive God's word for three reasons, because we are angry, we are arrogant, and we are sinful. That's what he says. Look at the passage, right? Verse 19, right? He says, be slow to anger. Why? Because anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Verse 21, put away all rampant wickedness. Put away your sin. Put away your rebellion against God. Again, in verse 21, he says, receive with meekness or humility the word of God, which means the opposite of receiving with meekness is what? Arrogance that pushes away. 
James's argument is that we can't hear and receive God's word because in our sin, we are arrogant, angry, and set on doing whatever it is we want to do. Keeps us from receiving God's word. Think about it this way. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with someone who was arrogant, angry, and set on doing whatever it is they want to do? Don't raise your hand. You're like, they're sitting next to me. So frustrating, right? Have you ever had this conversation with someone and you're like, you can just tell from the jump, they are arrogant and angry and they're going to do whatever it is. So this conversation doesn't really matter, right? Like you're just saying stuff and it's just bouncing off of them. Like they're just a brick wall. More often than not, then I like to admit this is me. <laughs> so a few weeks ago, uh, I was having a, we'll just call it a disagreement uh, with my wife and we were kind of going back and forth. And it was one of those arguments that about five minutes in, I realized that I was completely wrong and she was completely right. Have you ever had those conversations? You know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, you get into the argument and you're like, yes, let's tango. And then you're like, oh crap. <laughs> and then you have a choice, right? You have two paths that you can take in that moment. You realize they're right, I'm wrong. You can take path A, which is, okay, I'm going to admit I'm wrong. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to tell them they're right. Or option B is that you're going to further hunker down in your position and, I don't know, hypothetically make stuff up to defend your side. Hypothetically. So we're in this argument, and I realize five minutes in, dang, she is right, and I am wrong. But because of my anger, there's a wall in my heart. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to receive that. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to admit it. And then what happens is my arrogance catches up to my anger, and I start actually believing and justifying, thinking, no, maybe I'm not actually wrong. Maybe I am right. Maybe I do know what I'm talking about. And James says this is the posture we can have towards God's word. Arrogance and anger. And so what happens is we approach God's word in arrogance, right? And we start thinking, okay, I know better than this. I know better than what's happening here. We can start doing what I like to call interpretive gymnastics, right? Where we can read the passage and go, yeah, I don't really like it. So like, does it actually mean that? Or like, you know, in the context or like, I don't know, did James, like, did James actually mean receive the word? I know it says that, but like, have we really studied in depth or yeah, but he doesn't know my situation. He doesn't know what I'm going through. I was talking to somebody in our church this week about this idea. And they said, you know, it's interesting because it's like, we think every book in the Bible is the book of Revelation, Right? Like, if you've ever read Revelation, it's the end of the Bible. It's very, very confusing. There's creatures with like six wings and six eyes and heads of lions, and they're floating around the throne of God. And you're like, what is going on? But you know what's not confusing? Ephesians 4:32. Forgive one another as in Christ God has forgiven you. But we like to read it like it's Revelation. Ah, are we sure? Like, he means forgive. Like, have we done the Greek work on that? And like the verb conjugation? And like, maybe in his context, forgive meant like, don't forgive. And we just don't really know because we're like, you know, not first century Jews. We do this, interpretive gymnastics. Or some of us, we're like, nah, we're too lazy for that. And we just get angry. I just don't like God's word. I don't like that you're telling me God's word. Hey, nice believer who loves me, trying to correct me in God's word. I just, I'm, no thanks. Who are you to overstep into my life? Arrogance, anger, it keeps us from receiving God's word. It affects how we read it. It affects how we study it. It affects how we listen to sermons, how we come up under good, godly, biblical authority, how we receive correction and help from other believers who love us and love God. And if you want to know if this is you, if you're like, is that me? Do I have that posture? Here's just kind of two helpful things. One, uh, you have to look at all of life. So be wary of the deceptiveness that says because you're really good at receiving God's word in these four areas, that it means you're good in every area. Because oftentimes, at least in my life, there's those one or two areas that I'm not good at it in. 
You know what I mean? It's like, I'm good with receiving God's word in the areas that I'm already good at. But then when it pushes on that thing I don't like, pushes on that thing I'm not good at, that's where it becomes a whole different ballgame. Second way to, to test yourself in this is to ask this question. When's the last time the Bible disagreed with you and you changed your opinion? Like genuinely, when's the last time you opened God's word and you read something and you're like, huh, I don't think that right now and now I do. I should change. I was scrolling through Instagram uh, about an hour ago, kind of just trying to rest a little bit before preaching and somebody had a, a post on there and they said, it's interesting that I have found that my view of God always agrees with me. Does your view of God always agree with you? If you made a God in your image who only says things you already think. If you're here, if you're unable to receive the word in one area of your life or in many, James has an invitation from verse 21. Look at it. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In other words, we repent. Right? We put away all wickedness. We turn from what is not God. We turn from our ways that disagree with and rebel against what God has declared in his word, and we turn towards him. We receive with meekness. And notice the promise, his implanted word. This is a beautiful callback to Jeremiah 31. It's this prophecy in the Old Testament where God tells his people, one day I'm going to put my word on your heart. I'm going to write my law on your heart, which means that God doesn't want just his word to sit on us like this kind of outside source of authority where we're just grinning and bearing it and trying to follow him all the time. He actually wants to put his word in our hearts to do a new work from the inside out. Actually change our hearts, to change our desires. We would obey him. But not only obey him, but want to obey him. Want to receive what he has for us. That's the first step. Receive God's word. That's a good step, a necessary step, but it's only the first step. James continues, verse 22. But, he says, receive the implanted word with meekness, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Here's what James says happened. We receive the word, we try to push aside by the power of God's spirit, our arrogance and our anger and our selfishness and our sin, and we receive it. But James says, don't just stop there. Don't just receive it. Don't just embrace it. You actually have to do what it says. And look at this picture that he says, verse 23. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, notice this, and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. The Bible's funny. James is like, hey, you want to know what it's like if you hear God's word, study God's word, read God's word, walk away and do nothing? You're like a man who spends 20 minutes staring at a mirror and sees, hey, this is all that's wrong with me, and then walks away and changes nothing about his appearance. I can put this into our life. Imagine that I would stand before a mirror for 20 minutes, and I'm inspecting my face and what I'm wearing and all this kind of stuff, and then finally, after 20 minutes, looking intently at myself in the mirror, I walk away, and I walk up to you, and I say, hey, question, am I bald? I'm just curious. And you'd be like, you're what? Yeah, what? You would think I was crazy. And James says, that's what we do when we receive God's word, but don't actually obey what it says. When we hear it, when we study it, when we read it, and we don't actually put it into practice, because here's what happens. God's word is like a mirror. It lays us open before ourselves. Look at how Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You've experienced this. If you have God's spirit and you've read his word, right? You open it up and you're like, you just see stuff. The Bible says it's like a mirror, that God's word lays us open and vulnerable before God and before ourselves. This is who you actually are. This is who God is. This is where it doesn't line up. But what happens is, like someone who looks in a mirror, we walk away and we don't do what it says. I got another diagram. I know you were waiting for the rest of it. So we receive God's word. And then James says, you don't, not just a hearer, but you're a doer. And so he keeps going. He says, you have to obey. You have to obey God's word. But here's the problem. Because of sin, there's a barrier there. And James says that barrier is because we are foolish, forgetful, and deceived. We're foolish, forgetful, and deceived. We look at God's word. It exposes us. It exposes our lives. It exposes our sin. We say, oof, that's tough. Okay. And then we walk away. But for James, hearing and obeying must go hand in hand. And this is a a stern warning to those of us like myself who love studying God's word, who love theology, who love the deeper things of studying God's word, but don't actually put it into practice. Let me give you a helpful analogy. I hope it's helpful. Imagine a dad who gets up early in the morning to go to work. He gets up, makes breakfast, and he goes to throw something away, and he notices that the trash can in the kitchen is very, very full. He's like, all right, I'll throw it away in the bathroom. So he goes to the bathroom, trash can in the bathroom is also full. And he realizes, okay, all the trash cans in the house are full. He checks the garage, the trash bin is also full in the garage. He's like, okay, what is going on? He checks the family calendar. Oh, it's Tuesday, and Tuesday is trash day. So before he goes to work, dad sits down and he writes a letter to his kids. He says, hey, dear kids, it's him writing. I love you. You're my children. I want to remind you how much I love you. I want to remind you how much I care about you, how I've proven that love to you. Remember the pizza that I bought us last night as a family? The vacation we took this past weekend? I'm so excited. I love you so much. I can't wait to get home from work and finally get to hang out and spend time together. Goes to work. Kids wake up. They read the letter. Awesome. Go about their day. Dad comes home, 5, 5.36. Checks the trash. Still in the garage. Still full. Family meeting, right? Calls a family meeting. They go to the lecture room. Kids are in trouble. So he sits down and he says, all right, kids. There's three of them for this illustration, so you can imagine it. Kids, I wrote you a letter. What's going on here? I noticed you didn't take the trash out. And so the first kid, probably the oldest, because the oldest always speak first. He's like, don't worry, Dad. We got your letter. It was awesome. Loved it. I read it. I studied it. I like looked at the nuances of it. I made sure to break down how to diagram the letter. I looked at all the ins and outs of the original language. I thought about the context of the letter, you know, when you wrote it at 7 a.m. to when we wrote it and read it at 9 a.m. and the differences and the nuances of your context and our context. Loved the letter. Second kid's like, oh yeah? Well, I did even more than that. I took the letter to a coffee shop. I read it in public. I'm ashamed of your letter, Father. Sat down at that coffee shop. I read it. I even made sure before I left to organize my journal and the letter and my favorite coffee so I could take the perfect photo for Instagram. The caption was a quote from my favorite part of that letter. First kid, not to be outdone, comes back around. Well, I don't know about that, Father, but I have decided to not keep this letter to myself. I've decided, you know what, this news of taking out the trash, this instruction, it's too good to just keep to myself. So I'm going to actually organize a group. We're going to call it the the letter study. 
And we're going to study how to take out the trash in a gospel-centered, God-glorifying way. We're going to be a, a letter trash-taking-out family on mission with him. And then the third kid, he's just sitting there. He's like, to be honest, Dad, I just forgot what you wrote after I read it. He's the youngest. And the whole time, Dad's looking at him like, yeah, but did you take out the trash? Did you take out the trash? That's great that you love the letter. That's great that you studied the letter. That's great that you got the nuances of the letter. But did you do what the letter says? Did you take out the trash? And church, that's what we are tempted to do all the time with God's word, are we not? So we show up on Sundays to a gathering. We hear God's word preached and proclaimed. And for the most part, we're like, yes, that was a good word. I like that illustration. He made me laugh a little bit. He told some good stories. That quote, I don't remember what it said, but it was fire. I just remember that it was fire. And then we leave and do nothing and change nothing. We sit down in the mornings. We got our Bible and our, I keep saying letter, our Bible and our coffee. And we read it. We study it and we're convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit from what God has written. And we're like, yes, we even journal about it. Convicted by James 1 today. Oof, good word, God. And then we do nothing. We change nothing. We go to community group. Somebody across the circle from us in community group. They share some, some good insight that God is teaching them from God's word. And we might even say out loud, yes, good word. Retweet. Just say that in your group. And we change nothing. Or, convicted by the Lord. I want to be a better husband. Do so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to study the passages about being a better husband. Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 13. This is what love is. It sacrifices like Jesus sacrificed. I'm even going to read two Christian books that talk about what it means to live as a sacrificial husband. Because I'm really interested in changing this. And then it's Friday night and my wife asked me to help out with chores around the house. And I say no because I'd rather watch TV. Receiving is different than doing. You have to have both. James says we don't just receive. We got to do that. We have to do that. We got to look into it. But we also have to obey it. We also have to do what it says. And that's his goal, his whole summary in verse 25. Look at this with me. Verse 25. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James says, if, if you just hear the word, if you just receive the word, but you don't do what it says, you're foolish. You're deceived. If I can just warn you, church, I think one of the biggest ways that we're deceived into not actually doing is by stopping at being willing to do. You know what I mean by that? Good intentions are different than obeying. Being willing, a good thing. Being willing is a good thing. Being willing to do something and actually doing the thing are two different things. Now, being willing is a good first step, but often we stop there. I'm really willing to do this, but we don't ever actually do it. Listen to me, church, don't be willing to share the gospel. Share the gospel. Don't be willing to encourage someone in your community group who is in need and needs you to remind them of the gospel. Actually encourage them. Yeah, I have good intentions to be generous. That's great. Actually be generous. I have good intentions to engage my neighbor with the... That's good. Actually engage. There's a difference between being willing and actually doing it. And James says if we don't actually do it, we're deceived. We have a dead faith. In case you think that's just too harsh from James, he got it from his brother Jesus. Jesus talks about this all the time in the Gospels. I'll give you two examples. John 14, 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 
If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. He'll do what it says. And my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So James says we look, we look intently. We study the Bible, we memorize scripture, we meditate on scripture, we listen to sermons well, we study, we read, we meditate, we, we do all of these things. We, we look intently into God's word, but then we are not just a hearer who forgets, we're a doer who acts. She act on what it says. This is part of why, as a church, we equally emphasize both community groups and gatherings. One is not more important to the other as a church because this is how we live this out in our church. Right, so this time right here, when we gather together on Sundays, this is primarily hear the word time. This is primarily receive. We sing good songs with good theology. We, we listen to God's word. We pray it. We read it together in our liturgies. We hear it taught and proclaimed. This is where we receive. We learn to receive God's word, even when it's hard, even when we don't like it, even when it makes us uncomfortable. And then community groups are primarily our do the word time. Obey what it says as we figure out in the context of other followers of Jesus how to actually live out our faith. Not just talk about how to live out our faith, but actually keep each other accountable and pushing each other towards obedience. So we do both, gatherings and groups. If you miss one, you miss one of the wings of the plane. I don't know a lot about planes, but that's bad. <laughs> and then he wraps up the passage, verse 26 and 27. He's going to give us kind of a barometer of three things. We're going to hit these later in the series, so we're not going to talk about them much now, but let me just give them real quick. Three tests James is going to give to whether you know how you're doing on hearing and obeying God's word. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James says really clearly, if you want to know if you're doing a good job receiving and doing God's word, three tests. Number one, how's your speech? Do you use your tongue to bless or to curse, to build up or to destroy? Second, do you love and serve the poor? He says, do you visit the orphans and widows in their distress? And then third, do you have a pattern of consistently saying no to sin? None of us are perfect. All of us sin. All of us give into temptation. That's a part of living as fallen human beings on this side of eternity. But do you have a pattern of consistently saying no to sin and yes to God? Three easy tests. Like I said, we'll address them in more detail in weeks to come. Let me kind of close this out. Summary of James 1, 19 through 27. The big theme is this. Living faith receives and obeys God's word. And that, like what we're going to do for the rest of the series, is a hard word. I was going to start today by warning you that James is going to come after us, but really the whole book is him coming after us, if I'm being honest. But the beauty of living this out and the call to obedience of receiving God's word and obeying God's word comes in the fourth word of verse 19. We skipped over it. I wonder if you caught it. He says this, know this, my beloved brothers. How beautiful is that? Know this, my beloved brothers. Hey, some of y'all aren't receiving the word of God. You're kind of you're, you're angry. You're arrogant. Stop doing that. And some of y'all, you're receiving it, but you're not obeying it. You're foolish. You're like looking in a mirror and then walking away, not knowing anything. But before we get to any of that, here's what I need you to know. You are the beloved of God. We talked about this week one. We're going to talk about it a lot in this series. That is the good news of the gospel, that before James gets to a bunch of doing, he first gets to some done. You are the beloved of God. 
that you are brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus, that you are sons and daughters of God, that you are the beloved. The Bible says God relates to you like a father. He cares for you. He gives good gifts to his children. He nourishes you and comforts you and provides for you. He's like a good mother who tends to his infant, cares for you, nourishes you. He's like a husband to a bride, watches over you, welcomes you, sacrifices for you. We have to understand that first. Because what happens is, if we don't understand that we're the beloved of God, then we don't understand what James says in verse 25, that it's a law of liberty. Did you catch that too? Verse 25? It's a law of liberty. It's a law of freedom. Because here's what happens. If, if we don't understand that we're the beloved, then we don't understand that God gives good gifts to his children, then we don't understand that the word is actually a good gift. So what happens is we start viewing this as like, well, it's a bunch of rules. It's a bunch of stuff I just got to do, and it's keeping me from my fun. I don't like the Bible because it keeps me from fun. It keeps me from living how I want to live, doing what I want to do, living my life how I want to live it. And James says, no, beloved, you have a good father who only gives good gifts to his children, the creator and author and designer of the universe. And so what that means is that this is a perfect law of liberty, of freedom, because God has designed life to be lived a certain way. And it's good. Hard, yes, but good. Difficult, absolutely, but good. Full of suffering, of course, but good. So God is a good, good father, offers us a path of life. Life that his son Jesus says is life abundant, meaning life eternal and life to the full. That is the invitation in the law of liberty. That's the invitation in God's word, that we don't receive and do God's word out of this like stern obligation to a bunch of things we don't want to do, but rather he implants his word in our hearts so that from the inside out, we have fresh desires to step into the law of freedom. But it all comes from understanding that we are the beloved. As I think back to the lecture room, uh, now 20-ish odd years later, and I think about what did my dad actually want me to know? Like, what did he actually want me to know sitting in that lecture room the occasional time that I disobeyed him? What was he getting after? And I think, thinking about it, he was after two things. One, did I know that he loved me? Like, did I know that my dad loved me? But two, did I know that because he loved me, he was for my good? God's after the same thing. Beloved. Do you know that I love you? Do you know that I care for you? Do you know that in Christ you have eternal welcome by faith? And do you know that because I love you, I want what is good for you? So therefore, receive and obey my word. Therefore, do what it says. As we've said week one, and we're going to keep saying over and over again, legalism says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I receive God's word, I obey God's word, therefore God welcomes me and loves me and calls me his own. But the gospel says the opposite. It says, no, we are eternally loved in Christ Jesus through faith. So therefore, we learn to receive God's word and to do what it says. That's the invitation. Because we are the beloved of God, with living faith, we receive God's word and we obey it. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. God, that it is living and active. God, that we don't read uh, something that's dead. We don't read something that's old or outdated or just doesn't apply to our context anymore. We don't read something that was really good ideas or this blueprint for life. God, we read your revelation to us. God, the true words of God, of you. God, that you and your glory, you and your might, you and your kindness have chosen to reveal yourself to us. That we can know you 
as a good, good father. You can trust that because we are the beloved and because you only give good gifts to your children, God, that you want for us a law of liberty. A law that comes with some restrictions. Yeah, a law that comes with some don't do this and do this. Of course. But we know that all of those are invitations to life to the full in you. And so would you help us to trust you? Would you help in our times of arrogance and anger where we want to justify ourselves out of obedience to your word, where we want to say our context or our life circumstances, this just doesn't apply or it's not for me or you just don't understand, God, that we would have soft, receptive hearts, that we would put aside our sin and receive with humility the word you want to put in us. God, but we would not stop at hearing. It would help us not to be simply those who hear the word, but doers who act. God, when we read your word and it says repent, that we'll repent. When we read it and it says do this, that we'll do it. When it says don't do this, that we won't do it. God, that we would strive in all things, imperfectly full of failure, but striving after following you. We need you. We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen.